Hey everybody, welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. I'm Jay, and as usual, here with my friend Isaac. Hello. And um, yeah, today, really exciting, we are jumping into a conversation with Dr. Oz Guinness. Um, if you don't know Oz, he is a prolific writer, social critic, commentator. Um, his work has spanned many years and has been influential um, to many people we know personally, to us personally, um, as well as to the church, both um, here in the U.S. and globally. Oz, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jay. It's a real delight to be with you. There, There's so much that we want to ask you. Um, so it's a, the challenge, I think, is to yeah. whittle it down to a couple of questions. But I guess I'll begin with this. Um, when I think about the local church, particularly here in America, and particularly here where we're sitting in um, the heart of the Silicon Valley in California, um, the it feels like for me as a as a church leader and i think for isaac as well as a church leader it feels like to us um there has never been a more challenging time when it comes to sharing the gospel with people but you've been on record uh, you've written and you've said that you actually see this as a time of tremendous opportunity potentially greater opportunity now for evangelism and sharing the good news than maybe ever before. Um, talk a little bit about that. What gives you that sort of hope um, for evangelistic opportunity and the mission of the church today? Well, in my experience, the very fact that we are post-Christian is what raises many, many of the problems because the post-Christian answers are proving more and more bankrupt. I mean, you just take very simple things like <clears throat> what's the bedrock of our Western world? Things like human dignity, freedom, equality, justice, truth, gone down the line. Every one of them's up to grabs. And many of them, you can see the post-Christian answers, have no answer at all. Take, I, I'm just writing about another book on freedom. Look at, say, Hindu freedom or look at uh, atheist freedom. Sam Harris, one of the four horsemen, you know, freedom is what? An illusion. And you cannot, through naturalism, science and things alone, ground a view of human freedom. Where does it come from? The Jews and Christians from the scriptures. You know, in other words, one of my principles in apologetics, contrast is the mother of clarity. And you can see on the one hand, many of the ideas of the post-Christian world are a disaster. But not only that, the post-Christian ideas and lifestyles are sowing seeds of incredible confusion, psychologically, socially, and so on. So there are more messed up people looking for who am I and things like that than ever before. It's an incredible moment for the gospel. Now, of course, add to that, you guys are in Silicon Valley. There are two parts of the world where they're trying to construct a new Tower of Babel, and this is one of them. And you look at the issues that are being raised by Silicon Valley. Now, the trouble is lots of the churches aren't addressing them. And we need Christians engaged in the forefront of the discussion, not just at the level of engineering, but the thinking behind so much of this. So, say... Ray Kurzweil, singularity, post-humanism, and all that sort of stuff, you know, it's raising questions which only the gospel answers. So this is an incredible moment for the Western world, certainly for America. We could go into the whole American crisis. But here in the Valley, you have the most amazing opportunity. Yeah, there's a, a book 
came out a couple years ago. It's like a number one selling book. It's called uh, Homo Deus, Man, Man God. Um, and it's talking all about that. And it sold tons of copies. It's just wrestling with the idea of people really trying to transcend our humanity and you know the average church person probably has never heard of the singularity or kind of the you know going beyond ourselves but it's interesting because in one sense as you mentioned it's it's something pointing to the future but it's an old project it's an old project rooted in 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 babel no absolutely Um, and so those themes repeat themselves again and again and again and it's funny in the when christianity was birthed in kind of the the roman world it was our ethics, our, our sexual ethics, our, our ethics on, on charity and, and treating people in, in poverty, all of these things sort of started to become somehow in immoral Rome attractive. Like people are looking like, we think these Christians mm-hmm. might be crazy, but there's something attractive about their strict ethical code. Um, and so we do have a, a hopefully a, an opportunity to shine, like the way of Jesus is the path to human flourishing. Mm-hmm. And we have to demonstrate that both in thought and in our actions. So in one sense, yeah, there is a hope. I'm glad for that. Now you're I mean, opening up the whole thing of the sexual revolution. Mm-hmm. You know, in my view, I don't know about down here, but in parts of the country, too many people are looking at it anecdotally. Who am I to judge my sister-in-law, you know, my colleague at work, my neighbor, whatever. But if you look at the sexual revolution, which goes all the way back to people through Wilhelm Reich to the Marquis de Sade, it is very radical, very radical. And when we see that, it's going to lead to incredible confusions, as you can see with the extremes, say, the transgenderism and so on. And the gospel, once again, shines by contrast. So you mentioned the early church. It wasn't just their lifestyle. It was their caring, you know, picking up unwanted girl babies on the rubbish dumps and being there in times of disease and so on. So we're moving back to that sort of world. Christians need to know what they believe, who they believe, and then move out with confidence. This is an incredible moment. Hmm. Um, It reminds me, you know, John Ortberg, who was a pastor here Mm -hmm, in the Bay Area several years ago, wrote a book called Who Is This Man?, where he unpacks the way the teachings of Jesus expressed in the life of the early church won so many won the world mm-hmm. essentially. Rodney and, Stark's little book, Rise of Christianity. Yes, Rodney Stark, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and you've talked about this in a, in a really poignant, whimsical, pragmatic way when um, you talk about the difference between. Because I don't think anyone listening would argue with that vision. I think we're all like, yes, that sounds right. But then when we play it out in our everyday lives, there is a a tension in our sort of Twitter-fueled world. And you point out the difference between winning arguments and winning hearts. And there is a – in some ways, it's a nuanced difference. Um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. Um, How do you see that in unhealthy, maybe even destructive ways amongst – Well, there are a lot of problems with our current evangelism, Mm -hmm. I think. For one thing, evangelism's become separated from apologetics. Mm -hmm. And a lot of evangelism assumed the old 1950s Protestant, Catholic, Jewish world. And in many ways, Billy Graham, who is a great friend and hero of mine, he represented that world perfectly. Mm -hmm. And his death shows us how far it's gone. Mm -hmm. We're not in that world now. We're in a post-Christian highly pluralistic world 
with very secular parts of public life and very diverse parts of private life. And we've got to have a much more biblical view of evangelism. We've got to bring apologetics has gone astray. A lot of it's highly theoretical arguments that are much closer to, say, the Catholic proofs for God. That's what Pascal called the god of the philosophers, actually not even the god of the best philosophers, rather than the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I think a lot of apologetics is out to lunch. So we've got to have a thoroughly biblical apologetics and make it one with evangelism. Apologetics is pre-evangelism. People are not open, not interested, not needy. And evangelism, when people are opened up and they're sensing their need, you can dive straight in with the good news positively. Which is all the more reason for for theology and, and clear, robust, critical thinking. Um, you know, in, in, like you said, in the 50s in America, even though I, no one believes that 90% of the population was Christian, certainly 90% of it was at least culturally Christian. And, um, in that sense, they spoke Christian, even it, if they weren't. Exactly. And they could understand if, it. If they weren't going to church... They didn't say because it's not because I don't believe in God. It was because church is lame, it's boring, or yeah. they told themselves sooner or later I'm going to clean my act up, and I'll, when I have kids, well, their worldview was still shaped by the leftover religious residue uh, in Christianity and its mm-hmm. impact in the country. But now, as you said, people people aren't going to church because they don't think it's boring. They they think it's evil. It's 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 an oppressive institution, and so you can't get by with just knowing. A few Bible stories. You have to develop the life of the mind. You have to have good theology. You have to know the text. You said something that I think probably for our listeners is good for you to to clarify is that Christian the God of Christianity isn't the you know of the philosopher as far as Aquinas kind of the, the Catholic theologian. You said he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What, what did you mean by that? Because that, that's a critical point to 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 make. I think. Well, a lot of people think of apologetics, you have this rational argument, you can prove God, mm-hmm. whether it's a theistic proof or just evidences for this, that, and the other. I don't think they work. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's how unbelievers really come to faith in a good way. And we've got to challenge all those things and have a, an apologetic that is thoroughly biblical. When you say thoroughly biblical, unpack that a little bit. When, you know, I think the word biblical, somebody can hear that and assume many things based on their own history, their own experience of the church, their experience or lack of experience with the Bible. Um, what is what is distinctively the difference? Well, you know, I said evangelism, sharing the good news straightforwardly, is appropriate when someone's open, interested, and needy. You take, say, in the scriptures, the Philippian jailer. The man's hanging out all over the place. What must I do to be saved? How many people have come up to you in Santa Cruz or here in San Jose and said to on the streets, what must I do? <laughs> That's not the question. That man was that open. And all Paul is so brief. Someone who believed in the four spiritual laws, Paul would finish long before them. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're saved. But that's not most of our contemporaries. And in Scripture, as soon as people are not open, not interested, not needy, there's a shift in style. For example, questions rather than statements, stories, you know, rather than arguments, and so on. And we've got to look at the Scripture and see how that works. You look at something like the Nathan's parable story to David. I mean, it, it's brilliant. 
it's a subversive apologetic because he's aiming for the heart's conviction. It's a key word, subversive. Yeah, I think I, I think our, our our event, everything we do. I think actually preaching today has to be subversive. People have w- so many walls up, uh, and you, you almost well, you have to sneak have behind fewer, it. Slightly fewer in church yeah. than out in the streets. Yeah, yeah. you're in trouble. If yeah, I just threw my su- church under the bus. <laughs> Sorry, <Yeah>. South Valley. <laughs> no, go on. But Why but you have to sneak behind almost oh, and yeah. come in and and then. You know, when you're not paying attention, then there's this the surprise and wonder that the story of Jesus actually resolves whatever thing you've been worrying about, clears up that tension better than you could have ever imagined. Absolutely. But it's, very subver- it's a very subversive act. But you take even something, you know, C.S. Lewis talked about chronological snobbery. Yeah. Everyone today has the idea we're retarded. Mm-hmm. They are progressive. Mm-hmm. What absolute nonsense, as G.K. Chesterton pointed out long ago. They, they claim progress. They don't give you a standard by which to judge it. In fact, you examine a lot of this progressive stuff's leading nowhere. Yeah. It's regressive. But yeah. we've got you know, everything like that. We've got to have the courage to challenge cheerfully. And then when you do that, you start to see we are the ones with the most profound answers. We have the good news. Yeah. You know, the incredible moment. Because <laughs> oftentimes when they are judging, the ruler that they are using, the stand they are using, is borrowed from the Christian worldview, and they're using it to judge Christians. Oh, you're sexist or bigoted. It's like, well, no, no, you can't make those claims without borrowing from no. the worldview that we that we gave you. Right. Um, and so again, Christian, it's again, it's that vision that Jesus has for the world and human flourishing. Or you see them recoiling against the logic of their own position. You take, say, the Me Too movement. I mean, and clearly, male harassment is vile. But you look in the scriptures, the first voices against oppression in history were the Jewish prophets and so on. But in our post-truth world, as Nietzsche pointed out a long time ago, without truth, there's only power. And so as soon as you have people older, richer, more senior, whatever it is, more handsome, you know, obviously they have the power and they go for what's available. And the logic of the post-truth world is writ large in the male sexual aggression and these people have gone along with it and now there's incredible hypocrisy the way they're trying to challenge it without undermining the very basis of it hmm. but yeah. we should have critiqued a long time earlier yeah that the what you say about nietzsche is so profound and important i think right without truth there's only power we see in practical ways even the way people sort of these arguments that happen about um, all sorts of movements uh, you see the exertion of power in really almost visceral power. ways. That's yeah, right. only power. Mm-hmm. It's we're, we're yelling and screaming over yeah. each other. We're trying to drown each other out by overpowering mm-hmm. the other. Um, I, I do. I don't want to go backwards too far. I'm breaking the rules of podcast interviewing right now. Yeah. But the question like, is yeah. shaking it <laughs> in me. You said earlier. The Silicon Valley is one of two places globally that is building a Tower of Babel right now. I'm curious to know what the other, because you didn't say, what is the other place and what can we here learn from what is happening there? Well, the other one's the European Union. Hmm. And you can trace the idea, go back to uh, um, thinkers you know, a long time back who talk about resuming building the Tower of Babel. If You, you remember the film uh, Grand Budapest Hotel? The thinker behind that is Stefan Zweig, great Jewish writer in the 1920s and 30s. No one knows of him now. Probably the most widely read author in those times. 
and he has a wonderful little essay. I mean, wonderful because it's sobering, just called the Tower of Babel, and he, he's writing after World War One. Western civilizations shattered. And he says, we've got to go out there, resume the building. And the Tower of Babel, in the last line of the essay, says, it's for all who find their meaning in salvation, in striving against their creator. You mentioned Homo Deus. You know, Yuval Harari, he says, scientists are going to do better than the Old Testament God. Now, Silicon Valley is the optimistic IT post-humanist vision of Babel. And, of course, we know it'll collapse. But in collapsing, there's going to be incredible cost. And you start to examine the tension lines of what's happening here. Europe is already faltering. And that that connects sort of what your question is. Some of those thinkers like Nietzsche and others – not all of them, but many of them who saw the sort of death of God in in Western civilization, they didn't – sometimes Christians think they were saying that proudly and arrogantly like we killed God. Many of those thinkers were saying it in despair. They knew that a void would happen out of that, Mm -hmm. and they didn't know what would come out of it. And many of them would say, we don't know what's going to come out of it, but we know that on the way, millions are going to die. And that's actually been the story of the last hundred years. But Nietzsche wasn't despairing. He Mm -hmm. foresaw the Superman. The vitality of life principle and all that stuff, uh, he's dangerous. But you're right, he saw what would happen. Uh, he, he, he called the English ex-Christians like George Eliot, he called them windbags of progressive optimism because they believed God was dead, but everything went on the same as before. And Nietzsche says, no, it doesn't. Everything changes. Everything changes. The... Um issue of power, especially with postmodernity, there's any anyone who exercises power, especially in our culture among young people, it's like they're the they're the bad guy. Um, you know, someone makes truth claims, objective truth claims, that's a power game and they're here to oppress you. And you talked about the biblical apologetic and I think one of the opportunities is the story of Jesus perfectly does that subversion tactic we were just talking about. In a culture that's afraid of power games and an objectivity. The Christian story is the story of the only one who actually does have true power and authority and might comes down to die on the Roman cross to save his enemies and displays for the world the perfect embodiment of what good use of power looks like. And at the end of the story, you're you're glad that's that's the one who has power. Jesus has it. And he doesn't use it like the dictators and would-be leaders and tyrants of of our world does it he does it in this glorious beautiful mm-hmm. life-giving manner and so again it's it is hopeful our our message does have it have a response to the to those issues but we got to unmask the people you're describing mm-hmm. and I was there forever looking at power equations power differentials and using that as a tool to dominate and that's where their hypocrisy lies and it's can maybe continue on unmasking. What do you what do you mean by that? Well, challenging it, confronting it. Yeah. Rather than what's sort of been, uh, there's a lot of cowardice. Would you say? Oh, in, in a huge amount. We're on the we are on the back foot. And you started off Jay by saying you know Christians are discouraged with evangelists. We're on the back foot. 
we're dinosaurs, we're reactionaries, we're behind, and we're sexist and a lot of other rude things too. You know, when you break through all that, then you get the confidence in the gospel. We have the answers, and literally no one else does. And I don't mean that triumphalistically. They don't have the answers. Yeah. You know, the th- that sounds so it, – it's, it's sobering. Too simple, and it's. It? provocative because I think it resonates so true. It rings so true. And and then I can imagine a lot, many of us listening, the struggle then becomes, oh, wait, now I have a great responsibility because this is not easy work. What you're talking about is not simple. I don't just wake up tomorrow and realize, oh, yeah, I have the answers. Here I go. I'm going to engage and in, in whimsically invite people into the answers. I, I think what most followers, many followers of Jesus are now struggling with listening to something like that is like, okay, I believe we have the answers, but when I look at sort of try, try to roadmap, you know, how I get to those answers, I'm not really sure. You, you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, this is why apologetics is so important, and in particular, subversive apologetics, which is a whole nother layer, that there's a whole fresh wind of creativity when we think about apologetics. It can't mm-hmm. just be banging mm-hmm. people over the head with two Bible verses that tell you why you're wrong. There's there's a whole subversive element to it, which requires a lot more work. Um, you know, you, you um, I think it was a book you wrote, uh, fit, fit Bodies, Fat Minds, and... To me, that it summarizes one of the problems. Um, do you? I'm just going to ask a point blank question. So, and you're a point blank guy. Do Do you sense what is what is the level of and the problem of laziness in evangelical Christianity today? I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. And, and I mean, theological apologetical laziness mm-hmm. in evangelical Christianity. Today. Yeah, no, it's a huge problem. In other words, the present crisis catches evangelicals asleep in many ways. Put it like this. You look at the 20th century. Evangelicalism was warm-hearted devotion, wonderful, love for Christ. And Theodore Rojak here at the University of California, Hayward, described that as privately engaging, publicly irrelevant. But it could be warm-hearted, and it was technically known as privatized. You could get away with it because the consensus you talked about earlier was in place. In the 60s, the consensus broke up. Suddenly, it didn't work. And evangelicals tended to switch from an overly privatized faith to an overly politicized faith. Mm. A sleeping giant has woken up. We can grab the levers of power. Mm. You can't do it. They trusted politics to do what politics can't do. You know the old saying, the first thing to say about politics is that politics is not the first thing. No, it's this downstream from culture. But we were out of it. And we thought these simplistic ways would work. They haven't. We've got to grapple with it. So you know the gospel answers problems when you've talked to people who are really screwed up and are deeply in pain or confused or whatever it is. Or you, you know, too many Christians read only say books like mine or whoever it is critiquing the culture rather than reading Nietzsche and reading all the great people, Michel Foucault and these people who are behind today's thinking. You mentioned Yuval Harari, very, very every thinking Christian in the valley must read Homo Deus 
by Yuval Harari. They must. That's the alternative. But when you read the alternatives and go through it, then you're braced. You know, I, I, when I was much younger than even you are, I remember reading George Whitfield's journals, and he has a wonderful line there, I'm never better than when I'm on the full stretch for God. And I found, for instance, there was a time I went to study under a guru. Prof Hinduism at its best is spiritually powerful and philosophically very subtle. But the day I suddenly saw through it, the contrast, my own doctoral studies in what's called social construction, sociology of knowledge, it's the heart of the notion of social constructionism today. It's a mind-spinning world, or you come out rather. When I saw through it, and the difference the gospel makes. I came out the other side praising the Lord. You know, when I was with Francis Schaeffer, if you listen to some of his sermons, he's not the greatest preacher in the world, but almost every sermon, his voice breaks. Why? He's overcome. Either talking about the Lord, rather like sort of Isaiah or whatever, or talking about the brokenness of modern people. And either way, he, his voice would be overcome. We need people who care like that and get under it, it, the skin of things like that. And certainly the laziness is a huge problem. Yeah. But don't just read, get them, you know, put it another way, you guys who are in the ministry, you are the key. I mean, I was with, uh, I won't mention specifics, but a group, and it, the gap between some of the Silicon Valley business leaders and some of the pastors was sad. It was sad. You've got to be at the place where the Silicon Valley pastors are leading the way. They understand Yuval Harari and others, and they're preaching with passion the great biblical themes which will spur their people out to engage the valley yeah. at whatever level they enter. Yeah. I love that. I mean, that all, that strikes at the heart of why we what do about, what we do. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, what a prophetic word and powerful, provocative, much-needed yeah. word. Thank you for that. Um, I'm sort of struck with the the need. I, I I don't, you know. There's often a common critique I hear is, um, you know, no, the it's just keep it simple, just love the Lord and love people, and of course I agree with that. Of course, of course we all agree with that. But to oversimplify and say that that's all we need yeah. leads to the laziness of no, of, absolutely, and and to to provoke and invite our people, those who are listening, who are church leaders. I just, I yeah, I just want to say how serious this calling is. Yeah, in our well, you day know the age. early church maxim, the gospel is so simple a child can paddle in it, and so profound an elephant can swim in it. Mm. Um, the trouble is we've reduced it only to the former. You know, we have a maxim in parts of the country, Jesus plus nothing. Sounds terrific, but it's led to a very simplistic faith, as you say, with the addition of laziness. Yes. Disastrous. Yes. I mean, you're living among the titans of tomorrow here in the valley. And as Christians, you need to, there are people. I was, I mean, to mention a counterexample, I was with yesterday John Brandon who's you know, chief of sales at Apple until last year. But he is a real Christian thinker and had the respect of Steve Jobs and 
Tim Cook and other people who know him well. So thank God for the exceptions like that. But we want hundreds like that. I was saying to a group last night, you guys in the ministry should do this. You need to map the valley. What are the major corporations? Well, that's pretty obvious. Who are the major gatekeepers? Not just the corporations, but the key people in them. Then where are the leading Christians in this? And where are most people? And underlying that, what are the Silicon Valley issues of tomorrow? Enhancement and un- you know these sort of things. And then what are the Christian things that should be stressed? And then you guys in the ministry teaching at that level and thrusting people out. Yeah, because the, the vast majority of, of pastors are probably, when they're writing their sermons, are not thinking. And, and you know, I'm guilty of this. It's, it's Saturday, I'm praying over the message, prepping it. Okay, how, how do I equip the person who is going into work at Google or Apple Absolutely. tomorrow? Um, and so much of it, just not only in the literature, I mean, you look at the top 10 selling Christian books, but sure. listen oh. to the top podcasts, listen to the top sermons. It's 99% fluffy, inspirational stuff. And Self-help. yeah, and, and there, there's, it's like a diet. There's, a spa- there's space for everything. Ice cream isn't bad all, all of the time. Sometimes you just do need a good inspirational message, but we're starving on, on the, the vegetables, if, if, if you will. And so it's and not- And the meat. And the meat, yeah. <laughs> the meat. But, but I just put it this way. Uh, how do we get to where we are now? You can trace the thinking, Marx, Gramsci, or take a, a guy from the 60s, my age, you know, he's died now, Rudi Deutschke. He gave the idea of the long march through the institutions. You've heard that phrase. Well, that's 50 years ago he said that, 68. And people like that have done that long march, and they've won the institutions, the universities, the press and media, Hollywood, you name it. They've won it. Now you think we're not out to play a power game. That's not our thing. We're followers of Jesus. But we should, as salt and light, be penetrating in that way. The early church was. The Reformation was. Shame on us. We're so pathetically weak. The scandal of the American church. There's no European country except Poland where Christians are very strong for various reasons. The scandal of the American church. Christians are a huge majority and yet tiny minorities, say the Jews, wonderful people who punch well above their weight in culture, in all sorts of spheres. And here we are, huge majority, and we're like some flabby old giant wandering around, and no one takes us seriously. Shame on us, because we're dishonoring the Lord. Wow. And if we do truly believe Jesus is the solution, it isn't a power game because everyone everyone's lives would be better human flourishing would take place it's not like we got to hijack the universities to show why we're right and we're wrong this is for the bettering of of humanity um and it's a better vision than say the the homo deus the the kind of ultra humanist devoid of god vision i mean when you get to the as you're rounding out the end of the book you're kind of going like and now what and now what and and the christian story has those answers yeah I want to ask you before we wrap up, um, feels a little bit like a left turn, but I think it's connected because as we we're talking a lot about the future, but you've also talked quite a bit about the past, about our history and how that plays a part. It must play a part. Uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, C.S. Lewis's phrase, chronological snobbery. And, um, 
it feels like, and obviously all I've lived is my own life, you know, my 38 years, but it feels like now more than ever because of, of technology and the digital age and the speed at which information comes at us and the accessibility, it does feel like chronological snobbery is almost the air we breathe. All right? time the, high. The, the next thing yeah. is, is better mm -hmm. than the last thing always. Mm -hmm. um, this is okay, but we, we're going to make this better, which means this or what has been is by default not as good, yeah. not as smart, not as believable, not as whatever. But the church has a different story to tell. Our history, our rich, the rich tradition matters even now more than ever. And the, one of the reasons I'll just, you know, put all my cards on the table. One of the reasons I'm asking this question is because it's a question I'm wrestling with, with my own community, which, you know, our church, um, it's not all, but it's primarily younger folks, um, a lot of young married couples, as well as college students and 20-somethings. And I think this is a challenge in their lives every day. Um, and at the same time, I can see in their eyes, there is those moments when we bring history to life, there is something that comes alive in them that feels like surprise. Um, you know, when you talk about um, subversive apologetics, uh, you see sort of that, oh, I never knew, and there's a new level of engagement. Yeah, um, talk a little bit about, eva again, evangelical, mm -hmm. modern evangelical churches today. Where are we getting it wrong when it comes to our history mm -hmm. and the need to, to engage our people in the long unfolding story of God? Well, biblically, m m memory and remembering is one of the keys to faith. Now, that's true, obviously, in Scripture. You look at the uh, Passover and the communion and things like that, but we tend to make that spiritual and religious. But that's true in history. And both America and the church go forward best by going back first. Now, by going back, you're not reactionary. You're actually re truly progressive. And you think, uh, you know, take the Reformation or the Renaissance, which is pagan, both of them were movements of recovery. You can go back. The Renaissance went back to the roots of classical learning. Reformation went back to Jesus and the scripture. And going back properly, they went forward powerfully. And we've got to have that understanding today. Without history, you're just lost. You know, Churchill used to say, I forgot the exact quote, so I won't try it, but unless you look back, you really can't look forward well. And that's a huge problem. No one knows history. Yeah. You have Neil Ferguson at Stanford, the great English, Scottish historian, who points out even history majors in this country don't do much American history. Huh. I mean, Lincoln addressed the better angels of the American experiment. He knew them. This, I, I've often I've said it uh, last night. I've only heard two people in Washington in 30 years on Capitol Hill ever use history. I grew up under Churchill. Every speech he made was seasoned with a thousand years more yeah. British history. Wow. And we need people who know their history, not as academics. You know, I'm not a historian, but I love history. I take history in through biography. You don't read some boring thing like, you know, the social history of the 17th century, that'd be terribly boring on most of them like that. But read a biography and it comes alive. Yeah. A story. Mm -hmm. two, two thoughts. Um, one, when you look at how the gospel is presented specifically in the book of Acts, that's actually what they do. They tell the story of Israel. Again, they, go, they go back to Abraham and Moses and then they again, build up again. to Christ. And then communion is an act 
where you ground yourself in the past, the death and resurrection of Jesus with eyes set to the future. You do this again until he comes. Until he comes. That's right. And so you go back, your feet are firmly grounded, grounded on that foundation and your eyes fixed and set for the future. But American schools are appalling. They don't teach history. Hmm. I love that phrase, when you look back properly, you can then move forward powerfully. Yeah. And what a, what a wonderful and important, crucial reminder for us. Um, as we conclude, Oz, if there's, this is such a big question, and I'm sure you can go all over the place with this, but if there's one sort of urgent message you, you could give to church leaders today, 21st century, maybe in particular here in the Silicon Valley, but really all over, sort of trying to do church in our sort of post-truth digital age world. If there's just, if there's one crucially urgent thing you would want us to know, um, what would you say? It sounds too simple and maybe too pious by half, but I would say the central issue of the American church is faithfulness. And I think the curse of your generation in the ministry is a false pursuit of relevance. Unless you're really trendy, up-to-date, the latest or whatever, you're useless. Not at all. You've got to have confidence. The gospel is eternally relevant. And a lot of the guys who pursued relevance just end up with burnout for one thing, but being highly relevant. And I've I won't mention names, but some of the young guys who turned aside from Scripture um, for the sexual revolution and things like that, I just felt sorry for them. One of the guys whose name you'd know well, his father said to me, isn't X so courageous? I said to him, I feel sorry for both you and your son. By supporting you know, this view of the Scripture, the broader sexual revolution is not the slightest bit interested in you. They just want to use you to attack the faithful church. Soon you'll be roadkill. I felt really sorry for the guy, and I met so many who are just trendy. You know, so faithfulness. I had a, a wonderful last uh, hour and a half with John Stott, whose name you probably know, 92 or 3. He was just two weeks before he died. And at the end of it, I prayed for him. He's a great friend for many years. And I said, John, how can my wife and I pray for you? I didn't realize how close to the end he was. And with a very hoarse whisper, which is all he could manage, he said, pray that I am faithful to Jesus to my last breath. You know, and you look in the scripture, heresy is not a matter of doctrine. Heresy is described as adultery. Why? Truth is love, and we love the Lord, and we love Jesus. And so the loss of that first love, often in the name of things like trendiness or being in touch with that, you know, it's tragic. So take longer to explain it, but That's the central word. issue yeah, is powerful. faithfulness. I, uh, I tell my church regularly um, that our struggle the churches in America struggle is is exactly what you just said, and the line repeated again and again, and we need to just drill exactly what you said, is that we would rather be found cool by the world mm-hmm. exactly. than faithful to Jesus, and said it more kind of pointedly, we'd rather be found cool before a world that crucified our Savior than found faithful before the one that mm-hmm. saved us. Yeah. Um, 
and it's it's something we have to fight against. It's in all of it. It's, it's like in our DNA almost right now. It's like being birthed in this culture is you just want to be accepted and liked. And of course, our brains are being rewired through social media to need being liked and approved of. And at the heart of Christianity is the stumbling block and the offense of Jesus Christ. Um, and we need to stand for that in truth and love. Yeah, it's great. Oz, thank you so much for your time and for your work and um, your prophetic voice. You're truly prophetic voice for the church it's much needed in our day and age especially so um, really appreciate it well thank you great to be with you and god bless and all you're doing mm-hmm.